0: The first scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Numbers, uh, um, chapter 13, verse 26 to chapter 14, verse 12, and you will find this on page 143 of your pew Bibles. That is Numbers 13, 26 to 14, 12. They, that is the scouts who had been sent out by Moses, who were the leaders from each of the tribes of Israel came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, came from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them." That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And continuing to read in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verses 13 to 16, which you'll find on page 651. Proverbs twenty-six, thirteen to 16 A sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish, he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. A sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven people who answer discreetly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: In this season of Lent, we have been, these are 40 days of walking towards the cross, walking with Jesus as we watch Him face His death. And in this season, what we're doing is we're looking at these seven deadly sins, which we've been seeing are are, are sort of tilts of the heart that constantly turn us towards all sorts of misery and sin. Today what I'd like you to do is to think of your life, your heart as a garden. It's often a common image throughout Scripture that our lives are something like a plot of soil and it makes you wonder, what's actually growing there? What is my life producing? If you know gardens at all, you know the reality of weeds. Weeds threaten to overrun any garden unless you tend to it quite frequently quite well they will squelch out all the plants and the life that you hope will grow there all the fruit and the produce that you want to see flourishing there even in the best of gardens the most beautiful of gardens uh, unless you relentlessly get after those weeds they will overrun your garden and and that's what lent is a form of. It's a form of weeding. And what we're looking at with the seven deadly sins, it's a tool to help us weed out the garden of our lives, to pull up and pluck up and uproot all those things that really squelch the life of Jesus in our lives. Of course, doing this, the purpose isn't so that we have a nice, plain plot of dirt. The purpose of this is so that life can flourish and grow in it. So that all the things that we want to see take root and grow and and produce fruit will do this. So that the aim of it all is a full harvest of life. And so we've been looking at these seven deadly sins. We've been weeding the garden of our lives. And today we're going to turn to sloth. Sloth. Last week we looked at anger. We saw how anger is probably one of the trickiest sins because it can be both a vice and a virtue. Today we're going to look at sloth. And I'm convinced sloth is probably the most misunderstood of the seven deadly sins. In fact, I bet many of us already think, sloth? Really? That made the list of the top seven deadly sins? Most of us don't even think of sloth as a serious problem, let alone a deadly sin. Sloth? Don't we all need some time to kick back occasionally? What is so wrong with camping out on the couch and watching Netflix for a night, you know? Where's the danger in chilling out? Is that a, a danger of the first order that we need to put it on a list like this? As one author says, most of the world's troubles seem to come from people who are way too busy anyways. If only politicians and leaders were lazier, how much happier we'd all be. To our ears, sloth seems trivial, doesn't it? And and so what I did this week is I dove into some writings from two century writers, uh, author named Evagrius and one named John Cassian, along with a host of others who, who didn't live in any time that we're a part of, because it's good to get a cultural, get into a cultural context that is very different from yours. Like, ours doesn't understand sloth, so I had to go to other cultures and other times to try to figure this thing out because so often we're, we're blind, our culture blinds us to some of the dangers that, that we might be totally unaware of. And, and to a person, it's phenomenal, to a person, all these ancient voices name sloth as probably the most dangerous of the deadly sins, the biggest threat to your faith. That surprised me. That took me back. But okay, perhaps we can grant that. But who among us is going to accuse one another of sloth? Toronto is one of the busiest places I know. People come to the city to study hard at the university, to, to achieve and strive hard in their career. This city is filled with striving, hardworking professionals with students just driven to achieve. Laziness, lack of effort is is not something that you would tag on a lot of people here. Um, we are just driven to accomplish during our week. I think we can feel pretty secure in the knowledge that at least this vice hasn't gotten us, right? But what if, what if all our busyness is actually... One of the classic signs of sloth. What if the garden of our busy, hard-driving, over-scheduled, harried lives is actually directly traceable to that weed of sloth? What if it's true that sloth is one of the greatest dangers and yet we're completely misunderstanding? Well, that makes me want to pray. (laughs) So let's do this as we enter in. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray right now for your Holy Spirit to open up our lives and to give us wisdom. It feels like we're we're blind to this one, we can minimize, we can diminish, and we just don't understand what sloth is, and so we pray through your Holy Spirit, you would help us understand what so many of our faith ancestors understood. They became wary of this, give us God an insight and a knowledge into this and the way it's functioning and working in our lives, so that we might have our lives. Produce not these weeds, but the full fruit of the Spirit in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, what is sloth? Sloth at its core, you've got to know, is not a physical thing. It's not physical laziness or inactivity. But that may be one of its symptoms. But at its core, it is spiritual indifference. And to help us with that, I'm going to use, instead of the word sloth, I'm going to use the Latin term that was commonly used to reference this deadly sin. It's called acedia. And it comes from, well, the meaning of the word is a, ah, which is mean to be without. And sedia is the word for care. It's to be without care. Think of this deadly vice as um, to be without care, without love. Sloth just makes us think of slackers, right? Acidia is something so differently. Assidia says, I-, I could care less. Here's how people today say it Whatever, right? That's just a popular <laughs> phrase in our culture. Whatever. It means, I-, I could care less. Really? Don't bother me with this. It's this. Apathy of the heart. Acedia doesn't care about these great things. It could be, couldn't be bothered with it. It's an indifference to, to the gifts of God, to the salvation of God. It can see that gift of salvation, acknowledge that gift that God is offering. That looks good, yes, but you know, the effort it requires to enjoy it, to live it, the demands that salvation places upon us just seems too large too burdensome just not worth my energy my effort in this passage we heard read this morning numbers 13 we get a picture of how acedia functions how it's dangerous so dangerous as Numbers 13 god's people has been liberated from slavery in egypt for hundreds of years they've been slaves in bondage in egypt And God has marched them across the desert towards this home that God has promised them. This beautiful place where they can thrive. This little plot of earth where God's people can grow and flourish. God has protected and he's provided for them. He has guided, he's guarded them. And, And here they are standing on the border of the promised land. Their new life, literally standing across the river, the Jordan River. So close they can almost taste That milk and honey. Everything that God has promised is right there in sight before their very eyes. Now some spies, some scouts were sent in to do a little reconnaissance work. And they return and they give a report. And they first say, it "It is amazing land. It is good. Look at the fruit. It is just flowing with every sort of goodness. It is better than we could have ever imagined. But we can't go there. We can't take it. It is too much. The people there are giants. We will be devoured there. What a heartbreakingly sad story. Here they are with all of God's promises just within reach. And after hundreds of years in slavery, after a long desert trek, finally they're here. But the demands of Receiving God's promises, the challenges just seem too much for them. This sloth, this acedia, it's, it's a resistance of the heart. It's a failure of effort, but it's a failure of effort that's rooted in a lack of love. We, we try to content ourselves by making ourselves less than we really are. It's a desire to content yourselves with, with petty things, with things less than the full goodness that God offers you. God wants to kick the door down to your whole life and heart and flood us with his life, but we just want to keep the door partially shut, keep a few things hidden from God. And we see some of the symptoms of this acedia here in, in this passage. Even though the people stand right at the doorstep of God's great promise, even though they have evidence right of, of how good God has been, not only from the fruit of this land, but how God has provided, all they can see is trouble ahead. All they can see is the problem. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? We're just going to die by the sword. Our wives, our children will be taken as plunder. There's a disillusionment that happens in this deadly sin of Assyria. All all you're able to see is, is the dimness in life. There's nothing ultimately hopeful in life. There's nothing worth dying for, and so there's nothing worth living for. There's some connections, interestingly, from this deadly sin, acedia, to depression. But there's a distinct difference, too. The difference is that depression has a physiological basis, a brain basis. But, but acedia is, is a spiritual phenomenon. Acedia sloth comes to the conclusion that this life this journey is not worth living, that there is just no glory ultimately to this life. It's this settled conviction that life is just really small. It's flat. Ultimately, it's without God. Have we all experienced some form of that discouragement in our lives? Sometimes we sense, does does anything really change? And you can just feel your heart go flat. You wonder, do any of our prayers make a difference? Aren't we all familiar with that? It's, it's this wedge that Satan just drives into our hearts, makes us a prisoner of this sloth, this acedia. So there's this dimness, this discouragement, this dis- dis- disillusionment. But also, there's a, it's, it's amazing, acedia breeds an escapism. Look at how the Israelites think and talk. They say, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Yeah, let's Let's go back to Egypt. Let's get a new leader. We're off. Acedia is always looking around for some other way out other than God's way, which might require something of us. All the writers on, on Acedia see this temptation to escape. It's the struggle to to find God in our daily lives. We struggle with meaning, and so instead we try to escape. And we look around, and we busy ourselves. We distract ourselves with so much. This is why the connection of busyness to to acedia. why, Why do we mindlessly surf the internet? Why do we excessively check our emails and avoid reading that book that we know will really nourish our souls or engaging in that conversation that will really Deepen that relationship. So many of our distractions disguise themselves as productivity, but they're just distractions. They're empty busyness. That's why all the spiritual writers saw busyness as a symptom, actually, of sloth, of Instead of pursuing the demands of a loving God, we fill our lives with all sorts of distraction by which we actually run away from the claims of God. And the deep danger in Assidia is that it leads us away from our identity as God's people. We resist the demands of God's salvation that it places on our lives. And Assyria, when it's left to grow in your life, it eventually chokes out that idea. You give up that identity as God's love child. Look at, look at the Israelites in this passage. We know they were slaves in Egypt, right? And and through the leadership and the goodness of God and Moses, they were led out. They were no longer political captives. They were no longer bound in this one nation to Egypt. They were no longer slaves, socially, politically, economically. And yet how many times through their whole desert journey do we repeatedly read, oh, we really had it better back in Egypt, didn't we? You remember the fish? You remember the cucumbers and melons? We, We had it all free, didn't we? There was no cost to us at all for these things. Yeah, it was free. But you were slaves. They were slaughtering your children. They were whipping you. They were saying, bricks without straw, go get to it. Of course the food was free. What rational person looks and says, well, there's an upside to that, right? The food was free. They fed us. They're totally Confused about that. They've given up their identity as God's people. They're choosing the identity of slaves as opposed to the identity of God's free people living out as witnesses in this world. They are choosing slavery over the requirements of God's good purposes. They look at God and the offer of life in the promised land and it just looks like a burden. Instead of the pearl of great price that they are going to Chase at any cost to themselves, they think it's just too much work. Whatever, let's go back to Egypt. And in the end, this deadly sin, Asidia, it's, it's a resistance to God not only his gifts, not only his salvation, but to God himself. One of the spies names it the heart of Asidia. Joshua says it's rebellion. Verse 9, he says, do not rebel against the Lord. He sort of sees right through it. It is a resistance to the life that God offers. It is a resentment for the the demands that God's love places on our lives. Sure, you want God's life, his salvation. But when you realize what it takes to receive that, oh, it feels too much and you resent God for it. Or later, actually, God calls it contempt for himself. He says, all my people have shown contempt for me. It is a contempt for God and for the means of living with God. All those ways of God seem so ordinary, so, so normal. Really, God, couldn't you, couldn't you come up with a better way of living out this life? A little more spectacular, a little more pizzazz. How about a Shazam moment of transformation instead of just the hard work of day in, day out, living out this life of Jesus? This sin of a is really a tough one to to grab a hold of. And and let me try a couple of analogies with you to help us uh, get at it. Think of a budding musician. Someone who is slowly learning her instruments. Tasting some of the glories of music. You know, when music is played, when you get to play with others, there's this synergy, there's this beautiful lift, this energy. And how it can just lift your soul, the beauty, the wonder of it. She's experienced. She's tasted that. But, but she's also recognizing the demands music places upon you. And those demands are so mundane. You know, you've got to do trivial things like learn scales. And you've got to drill yourself in this instrument. You've got to practice. And not just occasionally. You've got to do this every day. And one day it strikes her, this, this is just too much. It's too hard. And she gives it up. Sure, she'll pick up her instrument once in a while, but mostly just stays in the closet. Or think of a husband and wife in a marriage. In general, this couple has a genuine friendship of love. But one night, they fight over dinner. And it's a fight they've had so many times, they've lost count. You who are married, you know that. You know Some of the fights you have early in your marriage, they just keep going the whole marriage long. And so this is the repeated fight they've had again and again. And so they head off to different parts of the house for the rest of the night because it's just easier to maintain a miserable distance than to do the hard work of owning and admitting your fault, of apologizing, of forgiving, of reconciling. And when couples just say, whatever, we've been through this before, that's acedia, that's sloth. It is the unwillingness to do what's necessary to experience the good. Learning to live together in a life of love, it takes effort. It takes work, daily, mundane, everyday work. One marriage therapist, interesting, John Gottman, he has done years of research and observation on couples. He says, I can predict when a couple is going to head for a divorce within five minutes of seeing them. And he has a rem- 95% rate of success of determining that. He's a remarkable man. You should read some of his stuff. But he has um, developed, he, he said, the thing that keeps couples connected are, are mundane practices. And he names five mundane, everyday, ordinary practices that couples, good couples, long-lasting couples do. And he says this, five things. Um, they give warm farewells in the morning. So it's a hug, it's a kiss, it's... Have a good day. They do a how is your day conversation at the end of the day. Um, they find ways to compliment, to show appreciation on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. They show affection, a simple peck in the cheek, a, a good night kiss. And they have a weekly date. Five so ordinary practices. You might also call them boring, mundane. And you might think seriously? Love is that mundane. Developing a relationship takes that sort of investment of yourself. And it might feel like an imposition or a demand on yourself. But to be in a relationship means it will change you. It will cost you. It demands daily nurturing, daily practices to build it up. And it is through daily practice, whether you feel like it or not, that the decision to love is renewed. A marriage begins when a a couple first vows, I choose you. And every day afterward, that choice gets renewed in just daily ways. The slothful person, the person afflicted by acedia, however, is one who resists those daily demands. Who's almost resentful that it's required of them. Who doesn't even, who feels like it's an Imposition. And now transpose that in our relationship with God. If we think of our relationship with God like this, we're, we're catching on to the dangers of this sin, sloth, asidia. God has promised us his life, his presence. He's given us his spirit, he's given us a new identity. You are cherished, loved children from before time. That is a promise. This new self, this new self has been born and, and is not fully perfected, right? And so the project of growing into that new self, of becoming fully that new self and calling, it takes a lifetime, but it happens on a daily basis. And yet when Assidia grows in our hearts, it says, it whispers, God's life looks good, but uh, not today. Too much for today. Don't, don't place those expectations on me today, God. And really, all those mundane practices, what are they doing anyway? I don't feel it. I'm not seeing any fruit. Because really, God, if you're love and you affirm and accept me as I am, do I have to change? Really, I don't. I'm okay. You accept me as I am. Ossetia actually causes us to misunderstand grace, interestingly enough. We, it, when we think about grace, we often confuse earning versus effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We can't earn our salvation. Grace is never opposed to effort. Grace involves our best efforts. And all this is the effect of this sloth, this Acedia, And it's linked to discontent. Interesting of a grumbling, resentful heart. If you look at the people of God here in Numbers, they grumbled, right? They were discontented with their leaders. They were disgusted with what God had provided with them. The manna that came every day, so boring. Please, can we get something new on the menu? The quail that God provided. Oh, we had it better in Egypt. And it was a contempt for God in his ways. And you've got to know this happens to us all the time. This is not just back then. This is us today. All these unnoticed turnings of our heart to the ways that God invites us to receive his salvation. Let me ask you a few questions, diagnostic questions. Have you ever resented having to go to church? You know, feeling like it's just an empty duty. And have, you, have you ever resisted the disciplines of prayer or Bible reading and wondered, what's the use? It feels like such an ineffective demand that, that just doesn't feel like it's leading me forward. It's just legalistic thing anyway, isn't it? Have you ever found a reason, no matter how small, for not doing good, for not reaching out and helping someone else in need? Have you ever just looked away from someone's need because it just felt too much for you to do? Have you ever come to the end of your work day and you realize, oh no, my small girl, my conversation community is meeting tonight and felt this inner, oh seriously, this weariness of just not wanting to go irritated at the imposition of this in your life. Have you ever looked around at your church and thought, man, I want to be part of another church somewhere, somewhere else where there's some life, where the worship is better, where the teaching's more invigorating, where the people, I don't know, they're just more with it where the fellowship's sweeter, where the coffee's better. And maybe it didn't lead you to uh, go to another church, but but it did lead you to just sort of reduce your commitment to your church. Can I start out and say, I felt every one of those things, and I'm the guy that gets paid to be here. And I get it. We feel this, right? They're real. We're so, it's so real. If you've ever felt those, that is the power of acedia, of this sloth. And something dangerous is gripping your life. And it seeks to take you down. This, this discontent with the people that God has placed you with. This grumbling heart that says, man, there's got to be some better ways to your salvation, God. Because this seems really boring. I just read this week, there's a professor, John Stackhouse, he's a professor of culture studies and theology, uh, and he, he talks about how Christians these days, he find them sort of congratulating themselves for how we've escaped a lot of the spiritual and worship practices from our Christian upbringing. He talked about, you know, sort of the, the overbearing expectations of things like Bible memorization or weekly Bible study or twice a Sunday worship or prayers or songs, the long sermons, the emphasis on evangelism. And he writes this quote, we're liberated from all that obsessive and isolating church going. But to do what? To worship more and better than our predecessors did? To form stronger relationships with other Christians than they did? to learn the Bible more soundly, to evangelize more effectively, to think more frequently and lovingly about the Lord than they did, what chance does our faith have to grow, our minds to mature, our relationships to improve, the effectiveness to increase if we spend less time, even far less time, on spiritual things than did our forebears? And then he concludes with this, I fear some of us congratulate ourselves on nothing other than worldliness. He's talking about the grip of asidia that turns us from God. And what's at stake is our identity as a follower of God. What's at stake is our connection to this community, to our faith that forms our faith. What's at stake is our calling as children of God. So what do we do about this asidia? That does, I'm convinced, this is one of the biggest in our culture, in our day and age. So what do we do? Well, here's one. Cling to hope. Acedia is a problem of hope, a failure of hope. And you see that here. Joshua is the only one who clings to hope. He says, listen, the land we passed through and explored, it is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. The Lord is with us, he says. He is saying, listen, you are not grasshoppers. You are not tiny specks. You are God's people. God has chosen you for this work and his purposes. He is doing this. He's leading us in this. Joshua is urging those people and us to seize the hope that God offers. Hope. Hope that your life is significant. Hope that you are precious in God's eyes. That the world is is large and beautiful. That God's kingdom is going to cover the whole earth it's a daring hope. the daring hope that through Jesus Christ, God invites you into his mission of renewing the whole earth and that you and your life and your work is all a part of this. We've got to learn to see the hope in everyday lives. To see that God is with us there in it. That there's no small thing that you do. That when you're a kind to your really frustrating neighbor, when you sacrifice yourself for your child, when when you take that money you were going to have for a really nice dinner or a latte and you give that away to someone who needs it, those are all acts of God's kingdom coming. Everyday faithfulness and relationships in, in your work are, are just infused with the good hope of God's kingdom. We need to learn how to reframe our lives. It's so easy to look at our ordinary lives and think, Whatever, really? What's how, what is it? No, no. God is in it. He is with us in it. All the little things you do. We need to learn to see the greatness, the majesty going on. I just think of Esau. What we heard from Esau um, a year ago. He was without hope, but people came alongside and said, "No, we're going to write letters, and we're going to stand up for you. We're going to hold out hope for this." And we prayed, and we encouraged, and we didn't quit. And now we have this beautiful thing. We quit way too easy. Way too easy. So to seize hope. Well, all we have time for is one more. Um, there's many other ways, but, and it's this. So it's faithfulness in the ordinary things, but faithfulness in those ordinary spiritual practices too. Recognize. That life has always been found in this long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience going in the same direction. It is patient endurance, the Bible says. That sense from scripture, from the Holy Spirit that says, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep going. If you read the book of Hebrews, you you see that throughout the book. It's interesting. The book of Hebrews is written to a, a number of people who were just in the grip of Assyria. And they were dropping like flies. They were quitting. They were bailing on the church. They were so discouraged. And the writer says, listen, we do not want you to become sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and through patient endurance inherited, received what was promised. So do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another keep on going with those what seem like mundane practices of worship, gathering together, prayer, using your gifts to serve others. Because in those daily things, two things are happening. As we've seen, God is using them for his purposes. He is working his kingdom out through you. But also, you know what they're doing? They're turning our hearts, converting us, making us more like Jesus. God is at work in those things. Because That's what God has done for us in Jesus. He meets us in the everyday, in Jesus Christ, in flesh, in all those earthly ways. This is where God meets us. This is the place where God is at work. And one of the ways we experience that most profoundly is actually in the church. Scripture tells us the church is the body of Christ. This community is the place where you best experience Jesus Christ. And I know that can be a scandalous claim, but it's the witness of Scripture and one of the things it does, it reminds us, we're not alone in this. Because during the week you can go out and you can feel like, oh man, I am just alone in this faith. And one of the reasons you need to come to church every Sunday is because you will see people around you. And re- remember, these people too are fighting this battle of faith. And sometimes they're struggling, they're battling, but you can be sure that their presence here, and that's why showing up really every week, it, your presence is an encouragement to others. When, because your presence reminds others... They're not alone in this. We're here together to raise the name of Jesus in our lives. So continue your long obedience in this same direction of ordinary practices of prayer and scripture and worship. Because what they do is they reframe our living so that we have God at the center. And that doesn't happen automatically because it's so easy to forget God. So, we need to be intentional about this. Let Jesus reframe your lives around God. Center your lives on God so that we see the majesty, the glory of daily living. So that all the small things we do are actually big, magnificent, because we are doing them for the King of Kings. Let's pray. Almighty God. We pray that you would help us spot this deadly vice of acedia. Don't let us get to fooled. It's just sort of kicking back or slacking off, God. But it's so much more lethal than that. And help us to spot it and name it, God, so that we can get rid of it. So that we can weed it out. So that we can run from it. And as we do that, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we be so moved by what Christ has done that it would inspire in us patient endurance to throw off all sin and to pursue the life that you have given to us. May we never lose hope. May we we never flag in zeal, God. But may we be filled with strength for this journey, knowing that you are perfecting our faith. You are making us like Jesus day after day. Thank you for that good hope. Thank you for this good life, God. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.